0: 英語聞き流し世界名作リスニング、英語テキストとMP3ダウンロード、他の物語はホームページからご利用いただけます。88thpp.com 88thpp.com Chapter 9 Meg Goes to Vanity Fair I do think it was the most fortunate thing in the world that those children should have the measles just now, said Meg, one April day, as she stood packing the go a trunk in her room surrounded by her sisters. And so nice of Annie Moffat not to forget her promise. A whole fortnight of fun will be regularly splendid, replied Jo, looking like a windmill as she folded skirts with her long arms. And such lovely weather, I'm so glad of that, added Beth, tidily sorting neck and hair ribbons in her best box, lent for the great occasion. I wish I was going to have a fine time and wear all these nice things, said Amy with her mouth full of pins, as she artistically replenished her sister's cushion. I wish you were all going, but as you can, not I shall keep my adventures to tell you when I come back. I'm sure it's the least I can do when you have been so kind, lending me things and helping me get ready, said Meg, glancing round the room at the very simple outfit, which seemed nearly perfect in their eyes. What did Mother give you out of the treasure box? asked Amy, who had not been present at the opening of a certain cedar chest in which Mrs. March kept a few relics of past splendor, as gifts for her girls when the proper time came a pair of silk stockings, that pretty carved fan, and a lovely blue sash. I wanted the violet silk, but there isn't time to make it over, so I must be contented with my old tarlatan. It will look nice over my new muslin skirt, and the sash will set it off beautifully. I wish I hadn't smashed my coral bracelet, for you might have had it, said Joe, who loved to give and lend, but whose possessions were usually too dilapidated to be of much use. There is a lovely old-fashioned pearl set in the treasure chest, but mother said real flowers were the prettiest ornament for a young girl, and Laurie promised to send me all I want, replied Meg. Now, let me see, there's my new grey walking suit, just curl up the feather in my hat, Beth, then my poplin for Sunday and the small party, it looks heavy for spring, doesn't it? The violet silk would be so nice. Oh, dear. Never mind, you've got the tarlatan for the big party, and you always look like an angel in white, said Amy, brooding over the little store of finery in which her soul delighted it isn't low-necked, and it doesn't sweep enough, but it will have to do. My blue house dress looks so well, turned and freshly trimmed, that I feel as if I'd got a new one. My silk sack isn't a bit the fashion, and my bonnet doesn't look like Sally's. I didn't like to say anything, but I was sadly disappointed in my umbrella. I told Mother Black with a white handle, but she forgot and bought a green one with a yellowish handle. It's strong and neat, so I ought not to complain, but I know I shall feel ashamed of it beside any silk one with a gold top, sighed Meg, surveying the little umbrella with great disfavor. Change it, advised Joe. I won't be so silly, or hurt mommy's feelings, when she took so much pains to get my things. It's a nonsensical notion of mine, and I'm not going to give up to it. My silk stockings and two pairs of new gloves are my comfort. You are a dear to lend me yours, Joe. I feel so rich and sort of elegant, with two new pairs, and the old ones cleaned up for common. And Meg took a refreshing peep at her glove box. Annie Moffat has blue and pink bows on her nightcaps. Would you put some on mine? She asked, as Beth brought up a pile of snowy muslins, fresh from Hannah's hands. No, I wouldn't, for the smart caps won't match the plain gowns without any trimming on them. Poor folks shouldn't rig, said Joe decidedly. I wonder if I shall ever be happy enough to have real lace on my clothes and bows on my caps. Said Meg impatiently. You said the other day that you'd be perfectly happy if you could only go to Annie Moffat's, observed Beth in her quiet way so I did. Well, I am happy, and I won't fret, but it does seem as if the more one gets the more one wants, doesn't it? There now, the trays are ready, and everything in but my ball-dress, which I shall leave for mother to pack, said Meg, cheering up, as she glanced from the half-filled trunk to the many times pressed and mended white tarlatan, which she called her ball-dress with an important air. The next day was fine, and Meg departed in style for a fortnight of novelty and pleasure. Mrs. March had consented to the visit rather reluctantly— fearing that Margaret would come back more discontented than she went. But she begged so hard, and Sally had promised to take good care of her, and a little pleasure seemed so delightful after a winter of irksome work that the mother yielded, and the daughter went to take her first taste of fashionable life. The Moffats were very fashionable, and simple Meg was rather daunted, at first, by the splendour of the house and the elegance of its occupants. But they were kindly people, in spite of the frivolous life they led, and soon put their guest at her ease. Perhaps Meg felt, without understanding why, that they were not particularly cultivated or intelligent people, and that all their gilding could not quite conceal the ordinary material of which they were made. It certainly was agreeable to fare sumptuously, drive in a fine carriage, wear her best frock every day, and do nothing but enjoy herself. It suited her exactly, and soon she began to imitate the manners and conversation of those about her, to put on little airs and graces, use French phrases, crimp her hair, take in her dresses, and talk about the fashions as well as she could. The more she saw of Annie Moffat's pretty things, the more she envied her inside to be rich. Home now looked bare and dismal as she thought of it, work grew harder than ever, and she felt that she was a very destitute and much-injured girl, in spite of the new gloves and silk stockings. She had not much time for repining, however, for the three young girls were busily employed and having a good time. They shopped, walked, rode, and called all day, went to theatres and operas or frolicked at home in the evening, for Annie had many friends and knew how to entertain them. Her older sisters were very fine young ladies, and one was engaged, which was extremely interesting and romantic, Meg thought. Mr. Moffat was a fat, jolly old gentleman who knew her father, and Mrs. Moffat, a fat, jolly old lady, who took as great a fancy to Meg as her daughter had done. Everyone petted her, and Daisy, as they called her, was in a fair way to have her head turned. When the evening for the small party came, she found that the poplin wouldn't do at all, for the other girls were putting on thin dresses and making themselves very fine indeed. So out came the tarlatan, looking older, limper, and shabbier than ever beside Sally's crisp new one. Meg saw the girls glance at it and then at one another, and her cheeks began to burn, for with all her gentleness she was very proud. No one said a word about it, but Sally offered to dress her hair, and Annie to tie her sash, and Belle, the engaged sister, praised her white arms. But in their kindness Meg saw only pity for her poverty, and her heart felt very heavy as she stood by herself, while the others laughed, chattered, and flew about like gauzy butterflies. The hard, bitter feeling was getting pretty bad, when the maid brought in a box of flowers. Before she could speak, Annie had the cover off, and all were exclaiming at the lovely roses, heath, and fern within. It's for Belle, of course, George always sends her some, but these are altogether ravishing, cried Annie, with a great sniff. They are for Miss March, the man said. And here's a note, put in the maid, holding it to Meg. What fun! Who are they from? didn't know you had a lover, cried the girls, fluttering about Meg in a high state of curiosity and surprise. The note is from Mother, and the flowers from Laurie," said Meg simply, yet much gratified that he had not forgotten her. Oh, indeed, said Annie with a funny look, as Meg slipped the note into her pocket as a sort of talisman against envy, vanity and false pride, for the few loving words had done her good, and the flowers cheered her up by their beauty. Feeling almost happy again, she laid by a few ferns and roses for herself, and quickly made up the rest in dainty bouquets for the breasts, hair, or skirts of her friends, offering them so prettily that Clara, the elder sister, told her she was the sweetest little thing she ever saw, and they looked quite charmed with her small attention. Somehow the kind act finished her despondency, and when all the rest went to show themselves to Mrs. Moffat, she saw a happy, bright-eyed face in the mirror, as she laid her ferns against her rippling hair and fastened the roses in the dress that didn't strike her as so very shabby now. She enjoyed herself very much that evening, for she danced to her heart's content. Everyone was very kind, and she had three compliments. Annie made her sing, and someone said she had a remarkably fine voice. Major Lincoln asked who the fresh little girl with the beautiful eyes was, and Mr. Moffat insisted on dancing with her because she didn't dawdle, but had some spring in her, as he gracefully expressed it. So altogether she had a very nice time, till she overheard a bit of conversation, which disturbed her extremely. She was sitting just inside the conservatory waiting for her partner to bring her an ice, when she heard a voice ask on the other side of the flowery wall. How old is he? 16 or 17, I should say, replied another voice. It would be a grand thing for one of those girls, wouldn't it? Sally says they are very intimate now, and the old man quite dotes on them. Mrs. M has made her plans, I dare say, and will play her cards well, early as it is. The girl evidently doesn't think of it yet, said Mrs. Moffat. She told that fib about her mama, as if she did know, and colored up when the flowers came quite prettily. Poor thing. She'd be so nice if she was only got up in style. Do you think she'd be offended if we offered to lend her a dress for Thursday? Asked another voice. She's proud, but I don't believe she'd mind, for that dowdy tarlatan is all she has got. She may tear it tonight, and that will be a good excuse for offering a decent one. Here Meg's partner appeared, to find her looking much flushed and rather agitated. She was proud, and her pride was useful just then, for it helped her hide her mortification, anger, and disgust at what she had just heard. For Innocent and unsuspicious as she was, she could not help understanding the gossip of her friends. She tried to forget it, but could not, and kept repeating to herself, Mrs. M. has made her plans, that fib about her mama, and dowdy tarleton till she was ready to cry and rush home to tell her troubles and ask for advice. As that was impossible, she did her best to seem gay, and being rather excited. She succeeded so well that no one dreamed what an effort she was making. She was very glad when it was all over and she was quiet in her bed, where she could think and wonder and fume till her head ached and her hot cheeks were cooled by a few natural tears. Those foolish, yet well-meant words, had opened a new world to Meg, and much disturbed the peace of the old one in which till now she had lived as happily as a child. Her innocent friendship with Lori was spoiled by the silly speeches she had overheard her faith in her mother was a little shaken by the worldly plans attributed to her by Mrs. Moffat, who judged others by herself, and the sensible resolution to be contented with the simple wardrobe which suited a poor man's daughter was weakened by the unnecessary pity of girls who thought a shabby dress one of the greatest calamities under heaven. Poor Meg had a restless night, and got up heavy-eyed, unhappy, half-resentful toward her friends, and half-ashamed of herself for not speaking out frankly and setting everything right. Everybody dawdled that morning, and it was noon before the girls found energy enough even to take up their worsted work. Something in the manner of her friends struck Meg at once. They treated her with more respect, she thought, took quite a tender interest in what she said, and looked at her with eyes that plainly betrayed curiosity. All this surprised and flattered her, though she did not understand it till Miss Bell looked up from her writing and said, with a sentimental air Daisy, dear, I've sent an invitation to your friend, Mr. Lawrence, for Thursday. We should like to know him and it's only a proper compliment to you. Meg colored, but a mischievous fancy to tease the girl's made her reply demurely, you are very kind, but I'm afraid he won't come. Why not, Cherie? asked Miss Bell. He's too old. My child, what do you mean? What is his age, I beg to know, cried Miss Clara. Nearly seventy, I believe, answered Meg, counting stitches to hide the merriment in her eyes. You sly creature. Of course we meant the young man, exclaimed Miss Bell, laughing. There isn't any, Laurie is only a little boy. And Meg laughed also at the queer look which the sisters exchanged as she thus described her supposed lover. About your age, Nan said. Nearer my sister Joes, I am seventeen in August, returned Meg, tossing her head. It's very nice of him to send you flowers, isn't it? said Annie, looking wise about nothing. Yes, he often does, to all of us, for their house is full, and we are so fond of them my mother and old Mr. Lawrence are friends, you know, so it is quite natural that we children should play together, and Meg hoped they would say no more. It's evident Daisy isn't out yet, said Miss Clara to Bell with a nod. Quite a pastoral state of innocence all round, returned Miss Bell with a shrug. I'm going out to get some little matters for my girls. Can I do anything for you, young ladies? Asked Mrs. Moffat, lumbering in like an elephant in silk and lace. No, thank you, ma'am, replied Sally. I've got my new pink silk for Thursday and don't want a thing. Nor I. Began Meg, but stopped because it occurred to her that she did want several things and could not have them. What shall you wear? Asked Sally. My old white one again, if I can mend it fit to be seen, it got sadly torn last night, said Meg, trying to speak quite easily, but feeling very uncomfortable. Why don't you send home for another? Said Sally, who was not an observing young lady. I haven't got any other. It cost Meg an effort to say that, but Sally did not see it and exclaimed in an amiable surprise, only that. How funny. She did not finish her speech, for Belle shook her head at her and broke in, saying kindly. Not at all. Where is the use of having a lot of dresses when she isn't out yet? There's no need of sending home, Daisy, even if you had a dozen, for I've got a sweet blue silk laid away, which I've outgrown, and you shall wear it to please me, won't you, dear? You are very kind but I don't mind my old dress if you don't, it does well enough for a little girl like me, said Meg. Now do let me please myself by dressing you up in style. I admire to do it, and you'd be a regular little beauty with a touch here and there. I shan't let anyone see you till you are done, and then we will burst upon them like Cinderella and her godmother going to the ball, said Belle in her persuasive tone. Meg couldn't refuse the offer so kindly made for a desire to see if she would be a little beauty after touching up caused her to accept and forget all her former uncomfortable feelings toward the Moffats. On the Thursday evening, Belle shut herself up with her maid, and between them they turned Meg into a fine lady. They crimped and curled her hair, they polished her neck and arms with some fragrant powder, touched her lips with coral and salve to make them redder, and Hortense would have added a soupçon of rouge, if Meg had not rebelled. They laced her into a sky-blue dress, which was so tight she could hardly breathe and so low in the neck that modest Meg blushed at herself in the mirror. A set of silver filigree was added, bracelets, necklace, brooch, and even earrings, for Hortense tied them on with a bit of pink silk which did not show. A cluster of Tiro's buds at the bosom, and a ruche, reconciled Meg to the display of her pretty, white shoulders, and a pair of high-heeled silk boots satisfied the last wish of her heart. A lace handkerchief, a plumy fan, and a bouquet in a shoulder holder finished her off, and Miss Bell surveyed her with the satisfaction of a little girl with a newly-dressed doll. Mademoiselle is charmant, Trace Julie, is she not? cried Hortense, clasping her hands in an affected rapture. Come and show yourself, said Miss Bell, leading the way to the room where the others were waiting. As Meg went rustling after, with her long skirts trailing, her earrings tinkling, her curls waving, and her heart beating, she felt as if her fun had really begun at last, for the mirror had plainly told her that she was a little beauty her friends repeated the pleasing phrase enthusiastically, and for several minutes she stood, like a jackdaw in the fable, enjoying her borrowed plumes, while the rest chattered like a party of magpies. While I dress, do you drill her, Nan, in the management of her skirt and those French heels, or she will trip herself up. Take your silver butterfly, and catch up that long curl on the left side of her head, Clara, and don't any of you disturb the charming work of my hands, said Belle, as she hurried away, looking well pleased with her success. You don't look a bit like yourself, but you are very nice. I'm nowhere beside you, for Belle has heaps of taste, and you're quite French, I assure you. Let your flowers hang, don't be so careful of them, and be sure you don't trip, returned Sally trying not to care that Meg was prettier than herself. Keeping that warning carefully in mind, Margaret got safely downstairs and sailed into the drawing rooms where the Moffats and a few early guests were assembled she very soon discovered that there is a charm about fine clothes which attracts a certain class of people and secures their respect. Several young ladies, who had taken no notice of her before, were very affectionate all of a sudden. Several young gentlemen, who had only stared at her at the other party, now not only stared, but asked to be introduced, and said all manner of foolish but agreeable things to her, and several old ladies, who sat on the sofas, and criticized the rest of the party, inquired who she was with an air of interest. She heard Mrs. Moffat reply to one of them. Daisy March, father a colonel in the army, one of our first families, but reverses of fortune, you know, intimate friends of the Lawrence's, sweet creature, I assure you, my Ned is quite wild about her. Dear me, said the old lady, putting up her glass for another observation of Meg, who tried to look as if she had not heard and been rather shocked at Mrs. Moffat's fibs. The queer feeling did not pass away, but she imagined herself acting the new part of fine lady and so got on pretty well. Though the tight dress gave her a side ache, the train kept getting under her feet, and she was in constant fear lest her earrings should fly off and get lost or broken. She was flirting her fan and laughing at the feeble jokes of a young gentleman who tried to be witty, when she suddenly stopped laughing and looked confused, for just opposite, she saw Laurie. He was staring at her with undisguised surprise, and disapproval also, she thought, for though he bowed and smiled, yet something in his honest eyes made her blush and wish she had her old dress on. To complete her confusion, she saw Belle nudge Annie, and both glanced from her to Lori, who, she was happy to see, looked unusually boyish and shy. Silly creatures, to put such thoughts into my head. I won't care for it, or let it change me a bit, thought Meg, and rustled across the room to shake hands with her friend. I'm glad you came, I was afraid you wouldn't, she said, with her most grown-up air. Joe wanted me to come, and tell her how you looked, so I did, answered Lori, without turning his eyes upon her though he half-smiled at her maternal tone. "'What shall you tell her?' asked Meg, full of curiosity to know his opinion of her, yet feeling ill at ease with him for the first time. "'I shall say I didn't know you, for you look so grown up and, unlike yourself, I'm quite afraid of you,' he said, fumbling at his glove button. "'How absurd of you. The girls dressed me up for fun, and I rather like it. Wouldn't Joe stare if she saw me?' said Meg, bent on making him say whether he thought her improved or not. "'Yes,' I think she would, returned Lori gravely. Don't you like me so? Asked Meg. No, I don't, was the blunt reply. Why not? In an anxious tone. He glanced at her frizzled head, bare shoulders, and fantastically trimmed dress with an expression that abashed her more than his answer, which had not a particle of his usual politeness in it. I don't like fuss and feathers. That was altogether too much from a lad younger than herself, and Meg walked away, saying petulantly, you are the rudest boy I ever saw. Feeling very much ruffled, she went in and stood at a quiet window to cool her cheeks, for the tight dress gave her an uncomfortably brilliant color. As she stood there, Major Lincoln passed by, and a minute after she heard him saying to his mother. They are making a fool of that little girl. I wanted you to see her, but they have spoiled her entirely. She's nothing but a doll tonight. Oh, dear, sighed Meg. I wish I'd been sensible and worn my own things." then I should not have disgusted other people, or felt so uncomfortable and ashamed of myself. She leaned her forehead on the cool pane, and stood half hidden by the curtains, never minding that her favourite waltz had begun, till someone touched her, and turning, she saw Laurie, looking penitent, as he said, with his very best bow in his hand out. Please forgive my rudeness, and come and dance with me. I'm afraid it will be too disagreeable to you, said Meg, trying to look offended and failing entirely. Not a bit of it, I'm dying to do it. Come, I'll be good. I don't like your gown, but I do think you are just splendid. And he waved his hands, as if words failed to express his admiration. Meg smiled and relented, and whispered as they stood waiting to catch the time, take care my skirt doesn't trip you up. It's the plague of my life and I was a goose to wear it. Pin it round your neck, and then it will be useful, said Laurie, looking down at the little blue boots, which he evidently approved of. Away they went fleetly and gracefully, for having practiced at home, they were well matched, and the blithe young couple were a pleasant sight to see as they twirled merrily round and round, feeling more friendly than ever after their small tiff. Lori, I want you to do me a favor, will you? said Meg, as he stood fanning her when her breath gave out, which it did very soon though she would not own why. Won't I? said Lori, with alacrity. Please don't tell them at home about my dress tonight. They won't understand the joke, and it will worry mother. Then why did you do it? said Lori's eyes so plainly that Meg hastily added. I shall tell them myself all about it, and fest to mother how silly I've been. But I'd rather do it myself. So you'll not tell, will you? I give you my word I won't, only what shall I say when they ask me? Just say I looked pretty well and was having a good time. I'll say the first with all my heart, but how about the other? You don't look as if you were having a good time. Are you? And Lori looked at her with an expression which made her answer in a whisper. No, not just now don't think I'm horrid. I only wanted a little fun, but this sort doesn't pay, I find, and I'm getting tired of it. Here comes Ned Moffat. What does he want? said Laurie, knitting his black brows as if he did not regard his young host in the light of a pleasant addition to the party. He put his name down for three dances, and I suppose he's coming for them. What a bore, said Meg, assuming a languid air which amused Laurie immensely. He did not speak to her again till suppertime when he saw her drinking champagne with Ned and his friend Fisher, who were behaving like a pair of fools, as Laurie said to himself, for he felt a brotherly sort of right to watch over the marches and fight their battles whenever a defender was needed. You'll have a splitting headache tomorrow, if you drink much of that. I wouldn't, Meg, your mother doesn't like it, you know, he whispered, leaning over her chair, as Ned turned to refill her glass and Fisher stooped to pick up her fan. I'm not Meg tonight, I'm a doll who does all sorts of crazy things. Tomorrow I shall put away my fuss and feathers and be desperately good again, she answered with an affected little laugh. Wish tomorrow was here, then, muttered Laurie, walking off, ill-pleased at the change he saw in her. Meg danced and flirted, chattered and giggled, as the other girls did. After supper she undertook the German, and blundered through it, nearly upsetting her partner with her long skirt, and romping in a way that scandalized Laurie, who looked on and meditated a lecture. But he got no chance to deliver it for Meg kept away from him till he came to say goodnight. Remember, she said, trying to smile, for the splitting headache had already begun. Silence a la mort, replied Laurie, with a melodramatic flourish, as he went away. This little bit of byplay excited Annie's curiosity, but Meg was too tired for gossip and went to bed, feeling as if she had been to a masquerade and hadn't enjoyed herself as much as she expected. She was sick all the next day, and on Saturday went home, quite used up with her fortnight's fun and feeling that she had sat in the lap of luxury long enough. It does seem pleasant to be quiet, and not have company manners on all the time. Home is a nice place, though it isn't splendid, said Meg, looking about her with a restful expression, as she sat with her mother and Joe on the Sunday evening. I'm glad to hear you say so, dear, for I was afraid home would seem dull and poor to you after your fine quarters, replied her mother, who had given her many anxious looks that day for motherly eyes are quick to see any change in children's faces. Meg had told her adventures gaily and said over and over what a charming time she had had, but something still seemed to weigh upon her spirits, and when the younger girls were gone to bed, she sat thoughtfully staring at the fire, saying little and looking worried. As the clock struck nine and Joe proposed bed, Meg suddenly left her chair and, taking Beth's stool, leaned her elbows on her mother's knee, saying bravely. Mommy, I want a fess. I thought so. What is it, dear? "'Shall I go away?' asked Joe discreetly. "'Of course not. Don't I always tell you everything? I was ashamed to speak of it before the younger children, but I want you to know all the dreadful things I did at the Moffats. "'We are prepared,' said Mrs. March, smiling but looking a little anxious. "'I told you they dressed me up, but I didn't tell you that they powdered and squeezed and frizzled, and made me look like a fashion plate. Laurie thought I wasn't proper. I know he did, though he didn't say so, and one man called me a doll.' I knew it was silly, but they flattered me and said I was a beauty, and quantities of nonsense, so I let them make a fool of me. Is that all? asked Joe, as Mrs. March looked silently at the downcast face of her pretty daughter, and could not find it in her heart to blame her little follies. No, I drank champagne and romped and tried to flirt, and was altogether abominable, said Meg self-reproachfully. There is something more, I think. And Mrs. March smoothed the soft cheek, which suddenly grew rosy as Meg answered slowly. Yes. It's very silly, but I want to tell it, because I hate to have people say and think such things about us and Laurie. Then she told the various bits of gossip she had heard at the Moffats, and as she spoke, Joe saw her mother fold her lips tightly, as if ill-pleased that such ideas should be put into Meg's innocent mind. Well, if that isn't the greatest rubbish I ever heard, cried Joe indignantly. Why didn't you pop out and tell them so on the spot? I couldn't, it was so embarrassing for me. I couldn't help hearing it first, And then I was so angry and ashamed, I didn't remember that I ought to go away. Just wait till I see Annie Moffat, and I'll show you how to settle such ridiculous stuff. The idea of having plans and being kind to Lori because he's rich and may marry us by and by. Won't he shout when I tell him what those silly things say about us poor children? And Joe laughed, as if on second thoughts the thing struck her as a good joke. If you tell Lori, I'll never forgive you. She mustn't, must she, mother? Said Meg, looking distressed. No, never repeat that foolish gossip, and forget it as soon as you can, said Mrs. March gravely. I was very unwise to let you go among people of whom I know so little, kind, I dare say, but worldly, ill-bred, and full of these vulgar ideas about young people. I am more sorry than I can express for the mischief this visit may have done you, Meg. Don't be sorry, I won't let it hurt me. I'll forget all the bad and remember only the good, for I did enjoy a great deal, and thank you very much for letting me go. I'll not be sentimental or dissatisfied, mother. I know I'm a silly little girl, and I'll stay with you till I'm fit to take care of myself. But it is nice to be praised and admired, and I can't help saying I like it, said Meg, looking half ashamed of the confession. That is perfectly natural, and quite harmless, if the liking does not become a passion and lead one to do foolish or unmaidenly things. Learn to know and value the praise which is worth having, and to excite the admiration of excellent people by being modest as well as pretty, Meg. Margaret sat thinking a moment, while Joe stood with her hands behind her, looking both interested and a little perplexed, for it was a new thing to see Meg blushing and talking about admiration, lovers, and things of that sort. And Joe felt as if during that fortnight her sister had grown up amazingly, and was drifting away from her into a world where she could not follow. Mother, do you have plans, as Mrs. Moffat said? asked Meg bashfully. Yes, my dear, I have a great many, all mothers do but mine differ somewhat from Mrs. Moffat's, I suspect. I will tell you some of them, for the time has come when a word may set this romantic little head and heart of yours right, on a very serious subject. You are young, Meg, but not too young to understand me, and mother's lips are the fittest to speak of such things to girls like you. Joe, your turn will come in time, perhaps, so listen to my plans and help me carry them out, if they are good. Joe went and sat on one arm of the chair, looking as if she thought they were about to join in some very solemn affair holding a hand of each, and watching the two young faces wistfully, Mrs. March said, in her serious yet cheery way. I want my daughters to be beautiful, accomplished and good. To be admired, loved, and respected. To have a happy youth, to be well and wisely married, and to lead useful, pleasant lives, with as little care and sorrow to try them as God sees fit to send. To be loved and chosen by a good man is the best and sweetest thing which can happen to a woman, and I sincerely hope my girls may know this beautiful experience." It is natural to think of it, Meg, right to hope and wait for it, and wise to prepare for it, so that when the happy time comes, you may feel ready for the duties and worthy of the joy. My dear girls, I am ambitious for you, but not to have you make a dash in the world, marry rich men merely because they are rich, or have splendid houses, which are not homes because love is wanting. Money is a needful and precious thing, and when well used, a noble thing, but I never want you to think it is the first or only prize to strive for. I'd rather see you poor men's wives. If you were happy, beloved, contented, and queens on thrones, without self-respect and peace. Poor girls don't stand any chance, Belle says, unless they put themselves forward, sighed Meg. Then we'll be old maids, said Joe stoutly. Right, Joe. Better be happy old maids than unhappy wives, or unmaidenly girls, running about to find husbands, said Mrs. March decidedly. Don't be troubled, Meg, poverty seldom daunts a sincere lover. Some of the best and most honored women I know were poor girls, but so loveworthy that they were not allowed to be old maids. Leave these things to time. Make this home happy, so that you may be fit for homes of your own, if they are offered you, and contented here if they are not. One thing remember, my girls. Mother is always ready to be your confidant, father to be your friend, and both of us hope and trust that our daughters, whether married or single, will be the pride and comfort of our lives. We will, mommy, we will, cried both with all their hearts, as she bade them goodnight. Chapter 10 The PC and PO As spring came on, a new set of amusements became the fashion, and the lengthening days gave long afternoons for work and play of all sorts. The garden had to be put in order, and each sister had a quarter of the little plot to do what she liked with. Henna used to say, I'd know which each of them gardens belonged to, if I see them in chiny, and so she might, for the girls' tastes differed as much as their characters. Megs had roses and heliotrope, myrtle, and a little orange tree in it. Joe's bed was never alike two seasons, for she was always trying experiments. This year it was to be a plantation of sunflowers, the seeds of which cheerful and aspiring plant were to feed Aunt Cockletop and her family of chicks. Beth had old-fashioned fragrant flowers in her garden, sweet peas and mignonette, larkspur, pinks, pansies, and southernwood, with chickweed for the birds and catnip for the pussies. Amy had a bower in hers, rather small and earwiggy, but very pretty to look at, with honeysuckle and morning glories hanging their colored horns and bells in graceful wreaths all over it, tall white lilies, delicate ferns, and as many brilliant, picturesque plants as would consent to blossom there. Gardening, walks, rows on the river, and flower hunts employed the fine days, and for rainy ones, they had house diversions, some old, some new, all more or less original. One of these was the P.C. Apostrophe, for as secret societies were the fashion, it was thought proper to have one, and as all of the girls admired Dickens, they called themselves the Pickwick Club. With a few interruptions, they had kept this up for a year, and met every Saturday evening in the Big garret. on which occasions the ceremonies were as follows, three chairs were arranged in a row before a table on which was a lamp, also four white badges, with a big PC in different colors on each, and the weekly newspaper called, the Pickwick Portfolio, to which all contributed something, while Joe who reveled in pens and ink, was the editor. At seven o'clock, the four members ascended to the clubroom, tied their badges round their heads, and took their seats with great solemnity. Meg, as the eldest, was Samuel Pickwick, Joe, being of a literary turn, Augustus Snodgrass, Beth, because she was round and rosy, Tracy Tupman, and Amy, who was always trying to do what she couldn't, was Nathaniel Winkle. Pickwick, the president, read the paper, which was filled with original tales, poetry, local news, funny advertisements, and hints, in which they good-naturedly reminded each other of their faults and shortcomings. On one occasion, Mr. Pickwick put on a pair of spectacles without any glass, wrapped upon the table, hemmed, and having stared hard at Mr. Snodgrass, who was tilting back in his chair, till he arranged himself properly, began to read. The Pickwick Portfolio. May 20, eighteenth, Poet's Corner. Anniversary Ode. Again we meet to celebrate. With badge and solemn rite. Our 52nd anniversary. In Pickwick Hall, tonight. We all are here in perfect health. None gone from our small band. Again we see each well known face. And press each friendly hand. Our pickwick, always at his post. With reverence we greet. As, spectacles on nose, he reads our well filled weekly sheet. Although he suffers from a cold, we joy to hear him speak. For words of wisdom from him fall. In spite of croak or squeak, old six foot Snodgrass looms on high with elephantine grace, and beams upon the company, with brown and jovial face. Poetic fire lights up his eye. He struggles against his lot. Behold ambition on his brow. And on his nose, a blot. Next our peaceful Tupman comes. So rosy, plump, and sweet. Who chokes with laughter at the puns. And tumbles off his seat. Prim little Winkle too is here. With every hair in place. A model of propriety though he hates to wash his face. The year is gone, we still unite. To joke and laugh and read. And tread the path of literature. That doth to glory lead. Long may our paper prosper well. Our club unbroken be. And coming years their blessings pour. On the useful, gay P. C. Ace Ninegrass. Dash. The Masked Marriage. A Tale of Venice. Gondola after gondola swept up to the marble steps, and left its lovely load to swell the brilliant throng that filled the stately halls of Count Adelon. Knights and ladies, elves and pages, monks and flower-girls, all mingled gaily in the dance. Sweet voices and rich melody filled the air, and so with mirth and music the masquerade went on. "'Has your highness seen the lady viola tonight?' asked a gallant troubadour of the fairy queen who floated down the hall upon his arm. "'Yes, is she not lovely, though so sad?' her dress is well chosen too for in a week she weds count antonio whom she passionately hates by my faith i envy him yonder he comes arrayed like a bridegroom except the black mask when that is off we shall see how he regards the fair maid whose heart he cannot win though her stern father bestows her hand return the troubadour tis whispered that she loves the young english artist who haunts her steps and is spurned by the old count said the lady as they joined the dance the revel was at its height when a priest appeared and withdrawing the young pair to an alcove, hung with purple velvet, he motioned them to kneel. Instant silence fell on the gay throng, and not a sound, but the dash of fountains or the rustle of orange groves sleeping in the moonlight, broke the hush, as Count de Adelon spoke thus. My lords and ladies, pardon the ruse by which I have gathered you here to witness the marriage of my daughter. Father, we wait your services. All eyes turned toward the bridal party, and a murmur of amazement went through the throng, for neither bride nor groom removed their masks. Curiosity and wonder possessed all hearts, but respect restrained all tongues till the holy rite was over. Then the eager spectators gathered round the count, demanding an explanation. Gladly would I give it if I could, but I only know that it was the whim of my timid viola, and I yielded to it. Now, my children, let the play end. Unmask and receive my blessing. But neither bent the knee, for the young bridegroom replied in a tone that startled all listeners as the mask fell, disclosing the noble face of Ferdinand Devereux, the artist-lover, and leaning on the breast where now flashed the star of an English earl was the lovely viola, radiant with joy and beauty. My lord, you scornfully bade me claim your daughter when I could boast as high a name and vast a fortune as the Count Antonio. I can do more, for even your ambitious soul cannot refuse the Earl of Devereux and Vere, when he gives his ancient name and boundless wealth in return for the beloved hand of this fair lady, now my wife. The Count stood like one changed to stone, and turning to the bewildered crowd, Ferdinand added, with a gay smile of triumph, to you, my gallant friends, I can only wish that your wooing may prosper as mine is done, and that you may all win as fair a bride as I have by this masked marriage. S. Pickwick. Dash. Why is the pea? See like the Tower of Babel? It is full of unruly members. Dash. The History of a Squash. Once upon a time a farmer planted a little seed in his garden, and after a while it sprouted and became a vine and bore many squashes one day in October, when they were ripe, he picked one and took it to market. A grocerman bought and put it in his shop. That same morning, a little girl in a brown hat and blue dress, with a round face and snub-nose, went and bought it for her mother. She lugged it home, cut it up, and boiled it in the big pot, mashed some of it with salt and butter, for dinner. And to the rest she added a pint of milk, two eggs, four spoons of sugar, nutmeg, and some crackers, put it in a deep dish, and baked it till it was brown and nice." and next day it was eaten by a family named March. T. Tubman. Dash. Mr. Pickwick, sir. I address you upon the subject of sin the sinner I mean is a man named Winkle who makes trouble in his club by laughing and sometimes won't write his piece in this fine paper I hope you will pardon his badness and let him send a French fable because he can't write out of his head as he has so many lessons to do and no brains in future I will try to take time by the fetlock and prepare some work which will be all commie law foe that means all right I am in haste as it is nearly school time. Yours respectably, And Winkle. The above is a manly and handsome acknowledgement of past misdemeanors. If our young friends studied punctuation, it would be well. Dash. A sad accident. On Friday last, we were startled by a violent shock in our basement, followed by cries of distress. On rushing in a body to the cellar, we discovered our beloved president prostrate upon the floor, having tripped and fallen while getting wood for domestic purposes. A perfect scene of ruin met our eyes, for in his fall Mr. Pickwick had plunged his head and shoulders into a tub of water, upset a keg of soft soap upon his manly form, and torn his garments badly. On being removed from this perilous situation, it was discovered that he had suffered no injury but several bruises, and we are happy to add, is now doing well. Ed. Dash. The Public Bereavement. It is our painful duty to record the sudden and mysterious disappearance of our cherished friend, Mrs. Snowball Patpaw. This lovely and beloved cat was the pet of a large circle of warm and admiring friends, for her beauty attracted all eyes, her graces and virtues endeared her to all hearts, and her loss is deeply felt by the whole community. When last seen, she was sitting at the gate, watching the butcher's cart, and it is feared that some villain, tempted by her charms, basely stole her. Weeks have passed, but no trace of her has been discovered, and we relinquish all hope, tie a black ribbon to her basket, set aside her dish, and weep for her as one lost to us forever. Dash. A sympathizing friend sends the following gem. A lament. For s be pat pa. We mourn the loss of our little pet. And sigh o'er her hapless fate. For nevermore by the fire she'll sit. Nor play by the old green gate. The little grave where her infant sleeps. Is neath the chestnut tree. But o'er her grave we may not weep. We know not where it may be. Her empty bed, her idle ball. We'll never see her more. No gentle tap, no loving purr. Is heard at the parlour door. Another cat comes after her mice. A cat with a dirty face. But she does not hunt as our darling did. Nor play with her airy grace. Her stealthy paws tread the very hall. Where Snowball used to play. But she only spits at the dogs, our pet. So gallantly drove away. She is useful and mild, and does her best. But she is not fair to see. And we cannot give her your place, dear. Nor worship her as we worship thee. A.S. Dash. Advertisements. Miss Aranthe Bluggage, the accomplished strong-minded lecturer, will deliver her famous lecture on woman and her position at Pickwick Hall, next Saturday evening, after the usual performances. A weekly meeting will be held at Kitchen Place, to teach young ladies how to cook. Hannah Brown will preside, and all are invited to attend. The Dustpan Society will meet on Wednesday next, and parade in the upper story of the clubhouse all members to appear in uniform and shoulder their brooms at 9 precisely. Mrs. Beth Bouncer will open her new assortment of dolls millinery next week. The latest Paris fashions have arrived, and orders are respectfully solicited. A new play will appear at the Barnville Theatre, in the course of a few weeks, which will surpass anything ever seen on the American stage. The Greek Slave, or Constantine the Avenger, is the name of this thrilling drama. Dash. Hints. If SP didn't use so much soap on his hands, he wouldn't always be late at breakfast. AS is requested not to whistle in the street. TT please don't forget Amy's napkin. NW must not fret because his dress has not nine tucks. Dash. Weekly Report. Meg, good. Joe, bad. Beth, very good. Amy, middling. Dash. As the President finished reading the paper, which I beg leave to assure my readers is a bona fide copy of one written by bona fide girls once upon a time, a round of applause followed, and then Mr. Snodgrass rose to make a proposition. Mr. President and gentlemen, he began, assuming a parliamentary attitude and tone, I wish to propose the admission of a new member, one who highly deserves the honour, would be deeply grateful for it, and would add immensely to the spirit of the club, the literary value of the paper, and be no end jolly and nice.' I propose Mr. Theodore Lawrence as an honorary member of the PC come now, do have him. Joe's sudden change of tone made the girls laugh, but all looked rather anxious, and no one said a word as Snodgrass took his seat. We'll put it to a vote, said the President. All in favor of this motion pleased to manifest it by saying, aye. A loud response from Snodgrass, followed, to everybody's surprise, by a timid one from Beth. Contrary-minded say, no. Meg and Amy were contrary-minded, and Mr. Winkle rose to say with great elegance, we don't wish any boys, they only joke and bounce about. This is a ladies' club, and we wish to be private and proper. I'm afraid he'll laugh at our paper, and make fun of us afterward, observed Pickwick, pulling the little curl on her forehead, as she always did when doubtful. Uprose Snodgrass, very much in earnest. Sir, I give you my word as a gentleman, Laurie won't do anything of the sort. He likes to write, and he'll give a tone to our contributions and keep us from being sentimental, don't you see? We can do so little for him, and he does so much for us, I think the least we can do is to offer him a place here, and make him welcome if he comes. This artful allusion to benefits conferred brought Tupman to his feet, looking as if he had quite made up his mind. Yes, we ought to do it, even if we are afraid. I say he may come, and his grandpa, too, if he likes. This spirited burst from Beth electrified the club, and Joe left her seat to shake hands approvingly. Now then, vote again. Everybody remember it's our Lori, and say, I. cried Snodgrass excitedly. I. 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 replied three voices at once. Good. Bless you. Now, as there's nothing like taking time by the fetlock, as Winkle characteristically observes, allow me to present the new member. And, to the dismay of the rest of the club, Joe threw open the door of the closet and displayed Lori sitting on a rag bag, flushed and twinkling with suppressed laughter. You rogue. You traitor. Joe, how could you? cried the three girls, as Snodgrass led her friend triumphantly forth, and producing both a chair and a badge, installed him in a jiffy. The coolness of you two rascals is amazing, began Mr. Pickwick, trying to get up an awful frown and only succeeding in producing an amiable smile. But the new member was equal to the occasion, and rising, with a grateful salutation to the chair, said in the most engaging manner, Mr. President and ladies, I beg pardon, gentlemen, allow me to introduce myself as Sam Weller, the very humble servant of the club. Good. Good, cried Joe, pounding with the handle of the old warming pan on which she leaned. My faithful friend and noble patron, continued Lori with a wave of the hand, who has so flatteringly presented me, is not to be blamed for the base stratagem of tonight. I planned it, and she only gave in after lots of teasing. Come now, don't lay it all on yourself. You know I proposed the cupboard, broken Snodgrass, who was enjoying the joke amazingly. Never mind what she says. I'm the wretch that did it, sir, said the new member, with a well-arrest nod to Mr. Pickwick. But on my honour, I never will do so again, and henceforth devote myself to the interest of this immortal club. Here! Here! cried Joe, clashing the lid of the warming pan like a cymbal. Go on, go on! added Winkle and Tupman, while the President bowed benignly. I merely wish to say, that as a slight token of my gratitude for the honour done me, and as a means of promoting friendly relations between adjoining nations, I have set up a post office in the hedge in the lower corner of the garden, a fine, spacious building with padlocks on the doors and every convenience for the males, also the females, if I may be allowed the expression. It's the old Martin house, but I've stopped up the door and made the roof open, so it will hold all sorts of things, and save our valuable time. Letters, manuscripts, books, and bundles can be passed in there, and as each nation has a key, it will be uncommonly nice, I fancy. Allow me to present the club key, and with many thanks for your favour, take my seat. Great applause as Mr. Weller deposited a little key on the table and subsided, the warming pan clashed and waved wildly, and it was some time before order could be restored. A long discussion followed, and everyone came out surprising, for everyone did her best. So it was an unusually lively meeting, and did not adjourn till a late hour, when it broke up with three shrill cheers for the new member. No one ever regretted the admittance of Sam Weller, for a more devoted, well behaved and jovial member, no club could have. He certainly did add spirit to the meetings, and a tone to the paper, for his orations convulsed his hearers, and his contributions were excellent, being patriotic, classical, comical, or dramatic, but never sentimental. Joe regarded them as worthy of Bacon, Milton, or Shakespeare, and remodeled her own works with good effect, she thought. The P. O. was a capital little institution, and flourished wonderfully, for nearly as many queer things passed through it as through the real post office. Tragedies and cravats, poetry and pickles, garden seeds and long letters, music and gingerbread, rubbers, invitations, scoldings, and puppies. The old gentleman liked the fun, and amused himself by sending odd bundles, mysterious messages, and funny telegrams, and his gardener, who was smitten with Hannah's charms, actually sent a love letter to Joe's care. How they laughed when the secret came out, never dreaming how many love letters that little post office would hold in the years to come. Chapter 11 Experiments The 1st of June the Kings are off to the seashore tomorrow, and I'm free. Three months vacation, how I shall enjoy it, exclaimed Meg, coming home one warm day to find Joe laid upon the sofa in an unusual state of exhaustion, while Beth took off her dusty boots, and Amy made lemonade for the refreshment of the whole party. And March went today, for which, oh, be joyful, said Joe. I was mortally afraid she'd ask me to go with her. If she had, I should have felt as if I ought to do it, but Plumfield is about as gay as a churchyard, you know, and I'd rather be excused. We had a flurry getting the old lady off, and I had a fright every time she spoke to me, for I was in such a hurry to be through that I was uncommonly helpful and sweet, and feared she'd find it impossible to part from me. I quaked till she was fairly in the carriage, and had a final fright, for as it drove off, she popped out her head, saying, Josephine, won't you? I didn't hear any more, for I basely turned and fled. I did actually run, and whisked round the corner where I felt safe. Poor old Joe. She came in looking as if bears were after her, said Beth, as she cuddled her sister's feet with a motherly air. Aunt March is a regular samphire, is she not? observed Amy, tasting her mixture critically. She means vampire, not seaweed, but it doesn't matter. It's too warm to be particular about one's parts of speech, murmured Joe. What shall you do all your vacation? asked Amy, changing the subject with tact. I shall lie abed late, and do nothing, replied Meg, from the depths of the rocking chair. I've been routed up early all winter and had to spend my days working for other people, so now I'm going to rest and revel to my heart's content. No, said Joe, that dozy way wouldn't suit me. I've laid in a heap of books, and I'm going to improve my shining hours reading on my perch in the old apple tree, when I'm not having L. Don't say larks. Implored Amy, as a return snub for the Samphire correction. I'll say nightingales then, with Lori. That's proper and appropriate, since he's a warbler. Don't let us do any lessons, Beth, for a while, but play all the time and rest, as the girls mean to, proposed Amy. Well, I will, if Mother doesn't mind. I want to learn some new songs, and my children need fitting up for the summer. They are dreadfully out of order and really suffering for clothes. May we, Mother? Asked Meg, turning to Mrs. March, who sat sewing in what they called Mommy's Corner. You may try your experiment for a week and see how you like it. I think by Saturday night you will find that all play and no work is as bad as all work and no play. Oh, dear, no. It will be delicious, I'm sure, said Meg complacently. I now propose a toast, as my friend and partner, Sari Gamp, says. Fun forever, and no grubbing, cried Joe, rising, glass in hand, as the lemonade went round. They all drank it merrily, and began the experiment by lounging for the rest of the day. Next morning, Meg did not appear till 10 o'clock. Her solitary breakfast did not taste good, and the room seemed lonely and untidy, for Joe had not filled the vases, Beth had not dusted, and Amy's books lay scattered about. Nothing was neat and pleasant but Mommy's corner, which looked as usual. And there Meg sat, to rest and read, which meant to yawn and imagine what pretty summer dresses she would get with her salary. Joe spent the morning on the river with Laurie, and the afternoon reading and crying over the wide, wide world, up in the apple tree. Beth began by rummaging everything out of the big closet where her family resided, but getting tired before half done, she left her establishment topsy-turvy and went to her music, rejoicing that she had no dishes to wash. Amy arranged her bower, put on her best white frock, smoothed her curls, and sat down to draw under the honeysuckle, hoping someone would see and inquire who the young artist was. As no one appeared but an inquisitive Daddy Longlegs, who examined her work with interest, she went to walk, got caught in a shower and came home dripping. At tea time they compared notes, and all agreed that it had been a delightful, though unusually long day. Meg, who went shopping in the afternoon and got a sweet blue muslin, had discovered, after she had cut the brets off, that it wouldn't wash, which mishap made her slightly cross. Joe had burned the skin off her nose boating, and got a raging headache by reading too long. Beth was worried by the confusion of her closet and the difficulty of learning three or four songs at once, and Amy deeply regretted the damage done her frock for Katie Brown's party was to be the next day and now like Flora McFlimsey, she had nothing to wear. But these were mere trifles, and they assured their mother that the experiment was working finally. She smiled, said nothing, and with Hannah's help did their neglected work, keeping home pleasant and the domestic machinery running smoothly. It was astonishing what a peculiar and uncomfortable state of things was produced by the resting and reveling process. The days kept getting longer and longer, the weather was unusually variable and so were tempers, An unsettled feeling possessed everyone, and Satan found plenty of mischief for the idle hands to do. As the height of luxury, Meg put out some of her sewing, and then found time hang so heavily that she fell to snipping and spoiling her clothes in her attempts to furbish them up a la Moffat. Jo read till her eyes gave out and she was sick of books, got so fidgety that even good natured Laurie had a quarrel with her, and so reduced in spirits that she desperately wished she had gone with Aunt March. Beth got on pretty well for she was constantly forgetting that it was to be all play and no work, and fell back into her old ways now and then. But something in the air affected her, and more than once her tranquility was much disturbed, so much so that on one occasion she actually shook poor dear Joanna and told her she was a fright. Amy fared worst of all, for her resources were small, and when her sisters left her to amuse herself, she soon found that accomplished and important little self a great burden. She didn't like dolls, fairy tales were childish, and one couldn't draw all the time. Tea parties didn't amount to much, neither did picnics, unless very well conducted. If one could have a fine house, full of nice girls, or go travelling, the summer would be delightful, but to stay at home with three selfish sisters and a grown-up boy was enough to try the patience of a boaz, complained Miss Malaprop, after several days devoted to pleasure, fretting, and ennui. No one would own that they were tired of the experiment, but by Friday night each acknowledged to herself that she was glad the week was nearly done hoping to impress the lesson more deeply, Mrs. March, who had a good deal of humour, resolved to finish off the trial in an appropriate manner, so she gave Hannah a holiday and let the girls enjoy the full effect of the play system. When they got up on Saturday morning, there was no fire in the kitchen, no breakfast in the dining room, and no mother anywhere to be seen. Mercy on us! What has happened? cried Joe, staring about her in dismay. Meg ran upstairs and soon came back again, looking relieved but rather bewildered, and a little ashamed. Mother isn't sick, only very tired, and she says she is going to stay quietly in her room all day and let us do the best we can. It's a very queer thing for her to do, she doesn't act a bit like herself. But she says it has been a hard week for her, so we mustn't grumble but take care of ourselves. That's easy enough, and I like the idea, I'm aching for something to do, that is, some new amusement, you know, added Joe quickly. In fact it was an immense relief to them all to have a little work, and they took hold with a will, but soon realized the truth of Hannah's saying, housekeeping ain't no joke. There was plenty of food in the larder, and while Beth and Amy set the table, Meg and Joe got breakfast, wondering as they did why servants ever talked about hard work. I shall take some up to mother, though she said we were not to think of her, for she'd take care of herself, said Meg, who presided and felt quite matronly behind the teapot. So a tray was fitted out before anyone began, and taken up with the cook's compliments. The boiled tea was very bitter the omelette scorched, and the biscuits speckled with sailratus, but Mrs. March received her repast with thanks and laughed heartily over it after Joe was gone. Poor little souls, they will have a hard time, I'm afraid, but they won't suffer, and it will do them good, she said, producing the more palatable viands with which she had provided herself, and disposing of the bad breakfast, so that their feelings might not be hurt, a motherly little deception for which they were grateful. Many were the complaints below, and great the chagrin of the head cook at her failures. Never mind. I'll get the dinner and be servant, you be mistress, keep your hands nice, see company, and give orders, said Joe, who knew still less than Meg about culinary affairs. This obliging offer was gladly accepted, and Margaret retired to the parlour, which she hastily put in order by whisking the litter under the sofa and shutting the blinds to save the trouble of dusting. Joe, with perfect faith in her own powers and a friendly desire to make up the quarrel, immediately put a note in the office, inviting Laurie to dinner. You'd better see what you have got before you think of having company, said Meg, when informed of the hospitable but rash act. Oh, there's corned beef and plenty of potatoes, and I shall get some asparagus and a lobster, for a relish, as Hannah says. We'll have lettuce and make a salad. I don't know how, but the book tells. I'll have blanc mange and strawberries for dessert, and coffee too, if you want to be elegant. Don't try too many messes, Joe, for you can't make anything but gingerbread and molasses candy fit to eat. I wash my hands at the dinner party, and since you have asked Laurie on your own responsibility, you may just take care of him. I don't want you to do anything but be civil to him and help to the pudding. You'll give me your advice if I get in a muddle, won't you? Asked Joe, rather hurt. Yes, but I don't know much, except about bread and a few trifles. You had better ask mother's leave before you order anything, returned Meg prudently. Of course I shall. I'm not a fool. And Joe went off in a huff at the doubts expressed of her powers get what you like, and don't disturb me. I'm going out to dinner and can't worry about things at home, said Mrs. March, when Joe spoke to her. I never enjoyed housekeeping, and I'm going to take a vacation today, and read, write, go visiting, and amuse myself. The unusual spectacle of her busy mother rocking comfortably and reading early in the morning made Joe feel as if some unnatural phenomenon had occurred, for an eclipse, an earthquake, or a volcanic eruption would hardly have seemed stranger." Everything is out of sorts, somehow, she said to herself, going downstairs. There's Beth crying, that's a sure sign that something is wrong in this family. If Amy is bothering, I'll shake her. Feeling very much out of sorts herself, Joe hurried into the parlor to find Beth sobbing over Pip, the canary, who lay dead in the cage with his little claws pathetically extended, as if imploring the food for one of which he had died. It's all my fault, I forgot him, there isn't a seed or a drop left. Oh, (laughs) Pip. Oh, how could I be so cruel to you? cried Beth, taking the poor thing in her hands and trying to restore him. Joe peeped into his half open eye, felt his little heart, and finding him stiff and cold, shook her head, and offered her domino box for a coffin. Put him in the oven, and maybe he will get warm and revive, said Amy hopefully. He's been starved, and he shan't be baked now he's dead. I'll make him a shroud, and he shall be buried in the garden, and I'll never have another bird, never, my Pip for I am too bad to own one, murmured Beth, sitting on the floor with her pet folded in her hands. The funeral shall be this afternoon, and we will all go. Now, don't cry, Bethy. It's a pity, but nothing goes right this week, and Pip has had the worst of the experiment. Make the shroud, and lay him in my box, and after the dinner party, we'll have a nice little funeral, said Joe, beginning to feel as if she had undertaken a good deal. Leaving the others to console Beth, she departed to the kitchen, which was in a most discouraging state of confusion. Putting on a big apron, she fell to work and got the dishes piled up ready for washing, when she discovered that the fire was out. Here's a sweet prospect. Muttered Joe, slamming the stove door open, and poking vigorously among the cinders. Having rekindled the fire, she thought she would go to market while the water heated. The walk revived her spirits, and flattering herself that she had made good bargains, she trudged home again, after buying a very young lobster, some very old asparagus, and two boxes of acid strawberries. By the time she got cleared up, the dinner arrived and the stove was red-hot. Hannah had left a pan of bread to rise, Meg had worked it up early, set it on the hearth for a second rising, and forgotten it. Meg was entertaining Sally Gardner in the parlour, when the door flew open and a flowery, crocky, flushed, and dishevelled figure appeared, demanding tartly. I say isn't bread riz enough when it runs over the pans? Sally began to laugh, But Meg nodded and lifted her eyebrows as high as they would go, which caused the apparition to vanish and put the sour bread into the oven without further delay. Mrs. March went out, after peeping here and there to see how matters went, also saying a word of comfort to Beth, who sat making a winding sheet, while the deer departed lay and stayed in the domino box. A strange sense of helplessness fell upon the girls as the grey bonnet vanished round the corner, and despair seized them when a few minutes later Miss Crocker appeared, and said she'd come to dinner. Now this lady was a thin, yellow spinster, with a sharp nose and inquisitive eyes, who saw everything and gossiped about all she saw. They disliked her, but had been taught to be kind to her, simply because she was old and poor and had few friends. So Meg gave her the easy chair and tried to entertain her, while she asked questions, criticized everything, and told stories of the people whom she knew. Language cannot describe the anxieties, experiences, and exertions which Joe underwent that morning, and the dinner she served up became a standing joke. Fearing to ask any more advice, she did her best alone, and discovered that something more than energy and goodwill is necessary to make a cook. She boiled the asparagus for an hour and was grieved to find the heads cooked off and the stalks harder than ever. The bread burned black, for the salad dressing so aggravated her that she could not make it fit to eat. The lobster was a scarlet mystery to her, but she hammered and poked till it was unshelled and its meager proportions concealed in a grove of lettuce leaves. The potatoes had to be hurried, not to keep the asparagus waiting and were not done at the last. The blanc mange was lumpy, and the strawberries not as ripe as they looked, having been skillfully deacon. Well, they can eat beef and bread and butter, if they are hungry, only it's mortifying to have to spend your whole morning for nothing, thought Jo, as she rang the bell half an hour later than usual, and stood, hot, tired, and dispirited, surveying the feast spread before Laurie, accustomed to all sorts of elegance, and Miss Crocker, whose tattling tongue would report them far and wide. Poor Joe would gladly have gone under the table, as one thing after another was tasted and left, while Amy giggled, Meg looked distressed, Miss Crocker pursed her lips, and Laurie talked and laughed with all his might to give a cheerful tone to the festive scene. Joe's one strong point was the fruit, for she had sugared it well, and had a pitcher of rich cream to eat with it. Her hot cheeks cooled a trifle, and she drew a long breath as the pretty glass plates went round, and everyone looked graciously at the little rosy islands floating in a sea of cream. Miss Crocker tasted first made a wry face, and drank some water hastily. Joe, who refused, thinking there might not be enough, for they dwindled sadly after the picking over, glanced at Lori, but he was eating away manfully, though there was a slight pucker about his mouth and he kept his eye fixed on his plate. Amy, who was fond of delicate fare, took a heaping spoonful, choked, hid her face in her napkin, and left the table precipitately. Oh, "'What is it?' exclaimed Joe, trembling. "'Salt instead of sugar, and the cream is sour,' replied Meg with a tragic gesture. Joe uttered a groan and fell back in her chair, remembering that she had given a last hasty powdering to the berries out of one of the two boxes on the kitchen table, and had neglected to put the milk in the refrigerator. She turned scarlet and was on the verge of crying, when she met Laurie's eyes, which would look merry in spite of his heroic efforts. The comical side of the affair suddenly struck her, and she laughed till the tears ran down her cheeks. So did everyone else, even Croker as the girls called the old lady, and the unfortunate dinner ended gaily, with bread and butter, olives and fun. I haven't strength of mind enough to clear up now, so we will sober ourselves with a funeral, said Joe, as they rose, and Miss Crocker made ready to go, being eager to tell the new story at another friend's dinner table. They did sober themselves for Beth's sake. Lori dug a grave under the ferns in the grove, little Pip was laid in, with many tears by his tender-hearted mistress, and covered with moss, while a wreath of violets and chickweed was hung on the stone which bore his epitaph, composed by Joe while she struggled with the dinner. Here lies Pip March. Who died the 7th of June? Loved and lamented sore. And not forgotten soon. At the conclusion of the ceremonies, Beth retired to her room, overcome with emotion and lobster, but there was no place of repose, for the beds were not made, and she found her grief much assuaged by beating up the pillows and putting things in order. Meg helped Joe clear away the remains of the feast, which took half the afternoon and left them so tired that they agreed to be contented with tea and toast for supper. Lori took Amy to drive, which was a deed of charity, for the sour cream seemed to have had a bad effect upon her temper. Mrs. March came home to find the three older girls hard at work in the middle of the afternoon, and a glance at the closet gave her an idea of the success of one part of the experiment. Before the housewives could rest, several people called, and there was a scramble to get ready to see them. Then tea must be got, errands done, and one or two necessary bits of sewing neglected until the last minute. As twilight fell, dewy and still, one by one they gathered on the porch where the June roses were budding beautifully, and each groaned or sighed as she sat down, as if tired or troubled. What a dreadful day this has been! began Joe, usually the first to speak. It has seemed shorter than usual, but so uncomfortable, said Meg. Not a bit like home, added Amy. It can't seem so without Mommy and Little Pip, sighed Beth, glancing with full eyes at the empty cage above her head. Here's Mother, dear, and you shall have another bird tomorrow, if you want it. As she spoke, Mrs. March came and took her place among them, looking as if her holiday had not been much pleasanter than theirs. Are you satisfied with your experiment, girls, or do you want another week of it? She asked, as Beth nestled up to her and the rest turned toward her with brightening faces, as flowers turned toward the sun. I don't cried Joe decidedly. Nor I, echoed the others. You think then, that it is better to have a few duties and live a little for others, do you? Lounging and larking doesn't pay, observed Joe, shaking her head. I'm tired of it and mean to go to work at something right off. Suppose you learn plain cooking. That's a useful accomplishment, which no woman should be without, said Mrs. March, laughing inaudibly at the recollection of Joe's dinner party, for she had met Miss Crocker and heard her account of it. "'Mother, did you go away and let everything be, just to see how we'd get on?' cried Meg, who had had suspicions all day. "'Yes, I wanted you to see how the comfort of all depends on each doing her share faithfully. While Hannah and I did your work, you got on pretty well, though I don't think you were very happy or amiable. So I thought, as a little lesson, I would show you what happens when everyone thinks only of herself. Don't you feel that it is pleasanter to help one another, to have daily duties which make leisure sweet when it comes, and to bear and forbear?' that home may be comfortable and lovely to us all. We do, mother, we do, cried the girls. Then let me advise you to take up your little burdens again, for though they seem heavy sometimes, they are good for us, and lighten as we learn to carry them. Work is wholesome, and there is plenty for everyone. It keeps us from ennui and mischief, is good for health and spirits, and gives us a sense of power and independence better than money or fashion. We'll work like bees, and love it too, see if we don't, said Joe. Joe. I'll learn plain cooking for my holiday task, and the next dinner party I have shall be a success. I'll make the set of shirts for Father, instead of letting you do it, Mommy. I can and I will, though I'm not fond of sewing. That will be better than fussing over my own things, which are plenty nice enough as they are, said Meg. I'll do my lessons every day, and not spend so much time with my music and dolls. I am a stupid thing, and ought to be studying, not playing, was Beth's resolution, while Amy followed their example by heroically declaring, I shall learn to make buttonholes, and attend to my parts of speech. Very good. Then I am quite satisfied with the experiment, and fancy that we shall not have to repeat it, only don't go to the other extreme and delve like slaves. Have regular hours for work and play, make each day both useful and pleasant, and prove that you understand the worth of time by employing it well. Then youth will be delightful, old age will bring few regrets, and life become a beautiful success, in spite of poverty. we Will remember, mother. And they did. 英語聞き流し世界名作。88thpp.com 88thpp.com, 88thpp.com.